Well, this week we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 10. I'm going to invite you guys to make your way to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24. And while you guys are turning there, just a reminder of what uh, Bruce shared with us last weekend. So uh, what we've got here at the beginning of Luke chapter 10 is Jesus sending out 70 or 72, depending on your translation. 70 different uh, people that are going out that have been following him, that have been watching uh, the miracles that he's performed, heard the teaching that he's offered, and, and Jesus is sending them out as missionaries into the surrounding villages and towns that Jesus will, will one day come to. Uh, and what he's done is he's empowered, he's equipped, he's sent these missionaries out to take uh, the kingdom of God into these areas, to, to push back the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, and to bring the news of the kingdom of God into these areas. So last week they were sent out, and this week we get to see their joyful report of what happened as they went out in a little bit of conversation uh, as Jesus is having with them when they come back. So uh, I'd invite you guys, we're going to read from verses 17 all the way down through 24. Uh, you guys follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read uh, Luke ten seventeen and following. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the, Father, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Would you guys pray with me? God, we thank you for, God, for your word. God, we thank you that we can gather together this Sunday morning, that we can uh, come together and that we can uh, publicly declare by our presence here that we uh, want to hear from you. But God, we declare right now, we want to hear from you. God, we need you to speak to us. And God, we need you to reveal yourself to us this morning. So as we open up your word. God, as we uh, read these words that are on the page, God, we pray that they wouldn't just be words on the page to us this morning, but God, that you would breathe them into our hearts. God, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us not just understanding, not just comprehension, but God, that you would give us a heart that receives it, that, that as James said, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers. So, God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us during this time. And it's in your son's precious, beautiful, holy name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, over the last couple of weekends, we've had uh, several passages. It seems like through uh, Luke chapter 9, we've, we've just had week after week where I've gone home from studying. I, I've gone home from, as Pastor Dave and Bruce were sharing, with kind of smushed toes. You know, it seems like God's just been kind of stepping on us and, and leaning on us a little bit. Hey, you know what we've got this week? We've got a joyful, encouraging, exciting passage for us to get to, all right? 
So we're going to look at some really exciting times in the ministry of these men and women. We've got uh, first a joyful report of ministry as these disciples had gone out and now they've come back. Verses 17 through 20, we see their joyful report of ministry as they're sharing with Jesus. And, and what an incredible time this must have been. It, in verse 17, it tells us that we've got 70 pretty excited Hebrews on our hands as they're coming back. And as they probably have amazing stories to tell as they've been going around, they, they come back and they say, Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. These guys probably had incredible stories that they could come back and tell. But they, they, they point out the fact that I think there's something here for us to pause and, and notice for just a second. They say that the, the demons are subject to us in your name. I think it's important for us to note that that's not some magical incantation that they, uh, you know, they, they, they'd show up and they'd tell the demons to leave. And no, and, and that, well, in Jesus' name, they, they had to say the magical words. What what they're saying here, as, as we see in Acts 19 as well, if you want to write that down and footnote that. But, but what that's saying is that by the power of Jesus, that when Jesus shows up, things change. That when Jesus shows up, there, there's a difference. But it's, it's not in the magical words that the disciples were saying. It's in the power of the Savior that was coming, that was setting these people free. The kingdom of God was coming, was at work. And Jesus is showing up and Jesus is making a difference here. So these, these disciples are celebrating the ministry the way that God had been working. And we see in verses 18 and 19, even Jesus was celebrating their ministry. Jesus says that, that Satan has been snuffed out by the powerful works of his followers. He sees that, that the kingdom of Satan is being pushed back. And so uh, as he is speaking in these verses, he says that, that the disciples have been given power to even trample on snakes and scorpions, which are biblical terms for evil. You guys remember all the way back in the first few pages of the Bible, the picture of a snake is, is used to represent Satan in the Garden of Eden. There was something to rejoice in as darkness was being pushed back. And, and some translations, you, you may have been reading along in your translation of the Bible that says, I watched Satan fall, from, fall like lightning. But the New American Standard that I was reading from, that, that, that we read from here, uh, does a really good job of the translation here, specifically with these words. See, that the tense of the verb as we're talking about watching Satan fall like lightning, it, it's better captured by translating it as, I was watching. Not, I watched Satan fall, but I was watching Satan fall. What Luke understood to be happening here was that each exorcism by these 70 disciples that had gone out was demonstrating the defeat of Satan again and again and again. Jesus said, I was watching as Satan was being overcome by the kingdom of God. I was watching as the powers of darkness were being pushed back. So it's, it's possible that this could refer to the fall of Satan that was seen by Jesus before creation that's referenced from Isaiah 14. But... But more likely, it refers symbolically to what the exorcisms that were being performed, what those things meant for the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of darkness. These casting out the demons demonstrated the defeat of Satan, that, that, that the tides were turning a little bit. See, this announcement of the kingdom was not saying that everything was made perfect, not saying that, that everything was fulfilled, not saying that, that the kingdom of God had fully come in all of its realization, but, but what it was saying was that the rule of God on earth had started. See, think about it. 
Up to this point, uh, throughout the Old Testament, as you read the Old Testament, as you look at stories of how God was at work in the world in the Old Testament, we've got this, this big story, right? This big story that plays out throughout the Old Testament of how God was at work with a family of people. It started with Abraham that, that was passed down, and throughout the years, God had been at work with the Hebrew people, with that nation of Israel, as he had showed truth to them, as he had called them to obedience, as he had, had led them through really interesting times. But think about it. What were the stories of how Israel interacted with the outside nations? What were the outside nations like? Up to this point throughout the Old Testament, the nations around Israel had all been pagan lands. There may be a story of a, an individual here or an individual there, but as a whole, all of these countries you think about the Canaanites, you think about the, the, the people that were in Babylon, you think about all of these different nations, and, and all of these pagan lands had been characterized by their evil practices. When Jesus comes, Jesus has introduced the kingdom of God. Jesus has introduced a new era, which started here with his inner circle with the twelve that had been sent out about a chapter ago in, in Luke 9. Here he, he sends out the 70 in Luke 10, and, and that good news of the kingdom is proceeding to spread out like concentric circles out from Jesus, from Jesus' ministry. It proceeded to the surrounding areas, and it, it ultimately proceeded to the ends of the earth where people like me and you can be sitting here a few miles away from where Jesus' ministry happened and have heard the message of Jesus, have heard the message of the kingdom of God. Jesus' own words, right before he went back to heaven, he commanded these disciples to take the good news, to take the message of the kingdom of God to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? Well, what we see here in these stories of these disciples coming back is, is just the first steps of that going out. We see the first steps where, where the kingdom of God was starting to make an impact that that, that that impact was starting to go out. But verse 20, we see Jesus start to turn the page a little bit, right? See, he, he goes back to the joy that we see referenced in verse 17, but, but Jesus tells them, however, do not rejoice. Well, that seems strange, right? He picks up on that theme of joy, but he, he warns them not to rejoice in their missionary accomplishments. But you know what he does tell them to rejoice in? He tells them to rejoice in the miracle that has happened in them. To rejoice in their eternal salvation. See, it's important for us to remember that, that we must resist placing our joy, placing our hope, placing some sort of fulfillment in our lives in our own spiritual prowess. Our giftedness does not indicate spiritual superiority. God chooses to work in people's lives and through people how God sees fit. God is in control. God is sovereign and, and God does what God wants to. And so sometimes he may choose to, to use me or to use you. But that doesn't mean that, that we're somehow a blessing to God that, you know, God, I'm going to let you use my talents for a little bit. I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. I don't know. We must resist placing joy, hope, purpose in our own spiritual prowess. God chooses to use people. Remember, just one chapter ago, a few weeks ago, we were studying 
how Jesus sent the 12 disciples out. How God had used them to perform miracles similar to to this one at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. We saw that story where, where God sent the 12 out and now he sent the 70 out. They were performing miracles. They were healing people and casting out demons and, and doing similar things to what we see here happening. But, but you know what happened later on in Luke chapter 9? Jesus came down the mountain from the, the, the transfiguration and, and the nine disciples were there at the bottom of the hill trying to cast out a demon that they couldn't cast out. See, they had been used a few weeks earlier and now here they, they couldn't cast out that demon. If we place all of our joy in the fact that, that, that we perform miracles for God, that we do things for God, that the Spirit submit to us as, as the example is here in these verses, well, what happens to our faith when suddenly they, they don't? What happens to our faith when suddenly things look a little bit different, that God has a different purpose or a different plan, that God doesn't want to, to heal, that God doesn't want to work in that situation, that God's plan looks a little bit different maybe than our plan? Well, well then that throws us off, right? That damages our faith. So at the same time as Jesus is warning them, don't put your hope in the miracles and the signs and the things that you've seen happen. Don't put your hope in yourself, in your spiritual prowess. But he redirected his followers' joy. Verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Jesus is telling these joyful missionaries that their focus should be on the greater work of God in their own lives. He's telling them, don't focus on the miracles that you were able to perform. Focus on the miracle that has been done in you. The fact that your names are written in heaven. The fact that you have received eternal life. Praise God for that fact because because nothing can change that fact, right? John tells us that that those whom the Father has placed in my hand, no one can pluck out of my hand. There's also a warning against self-exaltation in this passage that that I think we should notice. The disciples were warned in, in Luke 9 against thinking that greatness lied in being served by other people. So here Jesus gives another warning. He says, guys, be careful. Don't boast in what you have accomplished for God. Don't boast in, in, in your prowess. Don't boast in what, what you can do for God because, because it's really not about us, right? An example of, of, of doing it right is seen in the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is, is denouncing the boasting of his opponents. And, and in that same chapter, Paul kind of pauses as, as these opponents are, are bragging about their greatness, about their miracles, about their strength, and he, he chooses, he says it's preferable for him to boast in, in his weakness. 2 Corinthians 11.30 says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Because see, Paul, his weakness it pointed out the fact that it wasn't about him. It pointed out the fact that, that we have a really incredible God, that if God can use a broken person like Paul or God can use a broken person like me or, or like you, God can use anybody. It points to the greatness of God, not the greatness of us. It's not about us. It's about God. Rather than boasting in our accomplishments, 1 Corinthians 1 suggests that we should boast in the Lord. If you're rich... Don't boast in your wealth. Don't rejoice in your wealth because one day your riches are going to fade away. Rejoice in the fact 
that your name is written in heaven. If you're a person of great intelligence, thank God for that. Use that for him, but, but don't boast in your intelligence. Don't find your purpose in your intelligence because one day that will fade away. Instead, rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. If you have a position of leadership in your job, if you have a position of leadership in the church or in your house or wherever, don't, don't brag about, don't boast, don't find your joy in that position. Find your joy in the fact that your name is written in heaven. So we see this joyful report of ministry as, as the disciples come back and celebrate what God has been doing through them. They, they celebrate with Jesus. The next thing that we see in the second half of our passage is a joyful prayer of thanks from Jesus in verses 21 through 24. Let's read those verses again so they're fresh in our minds. Verse 21, it says, At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. says in these verses that Jesus was happy about the exclusion of the wise, of the learned, of the well-trained. See, the, the wise and intelligent here that Jesus is talking about were the Christ-rejecting religious establishment of Jesus' day. We've seen story after story. We, we've seen these interactions between Jesus and the religious establishment, right? We've seen how the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the the, the, the religious leaders had blinders on, right? They had legalistic blinders. They had this religious framework that, that, that God had to fit perfectly in their little shape that they had set out for him. They, they had these philosophical blinders on. They, they thought they knew what God looked like and how God was supposed to work, and they, they totally missed the Messiah that had been promised for hundreds and hundreds of years. The little children in this context, as Jesus is talking about them, were the 70 disciples that had just gone out, that had just been on this missionary journey. The the uneducated common people, like these normal tradesmen, we don't know what these 70 did before they were sent out as missionaries, but we know that they were just normal, insignificant people. doesn't tell us their names. It doesn't tell us what they did. They were just 70 people that God was able to use to perform incredible things. See, God was pleased to reveal himself to little children, to these simple common people with with all of their needs, with all their deficiencies, with all their shortcomings, because those were the ones that were humble and teachable and knew their need for a Savior instead of feeling like they had it all together because they knew all the rules. They followed all the guidelines. They They had some form of self-righteousness like the Pharisees and the Sadducees believed they did. Was Jesus promoting ignorance as a virtue here? He says, well, thank you, God, for not revealing yourself to the wise. Is he saying that we should just avoid wisdom at all costs? 
that we should just stick our fingers in our ears and go, I'm just going to love God and I don't need to read my Bible and I don't need to learn anything. Well, no, obviously not. God does not love ignorance. He simply hates conceit. A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. I want to read for you guys a quote that kind of feeds this idea a little bit. The, the source of this quote is unknown. It's been lost to history, but it was somebody that said this, not me. But let me read this for you guys. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a man loves God, knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him because every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. Let's continue to grow. Let's continue to learn. Let's continue to, to, to pursue God because every little thing that we learn about God is a new reason for us to go, wow, we serve an incredible God. We serve a great God and, and he deserves even more of my love than I was already able to give him. So we see that now having praised God for revealing himself to little children, Jesus now praises the Father for making him the source of that revelation. Right? Verse 22, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, who the Father is except the Son, and, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. See, Jesus is the source of revelation because only God knows who God is. Only God can reveal who God is to, to people like us. See, God has been gracious to us to reveal himself to us in several different ways, right? We can, we can use the sciences to look around and, and we can look at creation and we can see evidence that points us towards God. If someone truly studies the human body and realizes how perfectly and intricately things are knitted together, how, how something as seemingly simple as the human eye can can fit together with all of the nerves and all of the things that are just absolutely perfect to give us the gift of sight well that that has to point to someone that designed it right that doesn't happen by chance we can look around at creation and we can see the the absolute beauty of the world that we live in especially where we live guys right we can look around we can see how incredible creation is and we can see well that that points to a designer. We also receive revelation, know a little bit more about who God is, know a lot more about who God is because God chose to reveal it to us. He's given a special revelation too, not just general revelation that we can see in the world, but he's given a special revelation that's, that's sitting in our laps today, that's sitting in our hands, that, that God has chosen to give us his written word, his inspired word, his, his absolute truth is sitting here in front of us today in his Bible, in his holy word. Jesus is the source of revelation because God reveals God and, and Jesus is the sovereign dispenser of knowledge of God. Jesus came to live on earth to reveal to, to humanity what God is like. Jesus was the word made flesh. Jesus was God who, who put on humanity, who came to live among us, who showed us what God was like, who showed us what the kingdom of God would look like practically in our lives, in our world. Jesus is the dispenser of the knowledge of God, and, and it says in these verses that, that he reveals the Father to, to those who the Son chooses to reveal him. See, 
we can't go out and, and figure God out on our own. We can realize that there may be a designer based on, on looking around in creation, but, but we can't find God on our own. Even with the Bible, you guys may have heard people that, that don't believe say, well, I, I've read the Bible, I, I just I can't understand it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. Well, you know what? No one can see or, or, or know God unless Jesus reveals it to them. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who came to reveal God to us, that, that Jesus is everything in salvation, that Jesus is, is everything. Jesus was the one that made a way for us to know God. Jesus is the one that reveals him. He is the redeemer. He is the sacrifice. He is the, the good shepherd. He is the one that, that leads us in paths of righteousness. He is the king. He is everything, both now and forever. Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, talks about the greatness of Jesus. It says that every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Every living creature exists to bring glory to God. And, and you and I are no different. But you know what else the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us in, in Ephesians that we were dead in our sins apart from God. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were made together alive with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. The Bible tells us that we were dead. Do you know what a dead person can't do? They can't choose to not be dead anymore. Dead people don't have that choice, right? Jesus was able to, to, to work in people's lives and, and bring the dead to life. But, but dead people don't in their own free will go, you know what? I'm going to decide not to be dead. We were helpless to save ourselves apart from the work of Jesus. The only way for us to come to saving knowledge of Jesus, the, the only way for us to, to have any hope in this world is through Jesus. John 14, 6 tells us that. Jesus talking, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father apart from me. It is only through Jesus that we have hope. It is only through Jesus that we are saved. And there is no amount of going to church that can change that reality. There is no amount of doing good things for your neighbors that can change that reality. Jesus is our hope. It is by faith in Jesus alone that we are set free, that we are saved. We, we have our hope in Jesus it is Jesus who reveals God to us, and it is Jesus who we place our hope in for salvation. Verses 23 and 24. Now, at this point, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Jesus said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. The, the parallel story in Matthew 13 reads, your eyes. It's, it's kinda, it has a, a focus on the disciples that had gone out, that, that they had an eyewitness account that they were blessed. But, but Luke kind of changes that a little bit, right? He, he may have intended to broaden the scope of the group that he's referring to to include his readers. 
You guys remember why Luke is writing this book. He's, he's writing this book to Theophilus to, to present a case for why Jesus is significant, why Jesus is the one that's different from, from all of the other men that have walked this earth. And so Luke is, is passing along the stories, that the message of Jesus. Luke wasn't a disciple. Luke wasn't one of the ones that had maybe seen some of these things as eyewitness accounts. He's, he's working with secondhand information, but he's saying, you know what, guys? We're blessed too. The term see may not mean so much physical seeing as it does understanding that God's kingdom has come, that, that, that God is at work, that, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. In the same way that these witnesses that, that saw the kingdom of God at work as they had been able to go out and see that kingdom of darkness being pushed back over and over again. Well, you know what? In the same way that those disciples were blessed, we're even more blessed than they are. Because they saw the, the, the initial steps of darkness being pushed back. Guys, we have more of the story than they did. We get to see the reality that that Jesus didn't just come to push back demons in those moments. He came to push back the kingdom of darkness to, to, to blow a hole in its hold on this world. We have received the entire story of the gospel. We have received the entire story of how Jesus came to offer a sacrifice that, that he didn't have to give. To, to offer his life as the perfect lamb so that we wouldn't have to give our lives. Jesus' work in bringing salvation to all men is an incredible blessing. Blessed are, are people like me and people like you who have the ability to see, to understand, to, to know what it is that God is doing in the world. J.C. Ryle talking about this idea, talking about the difference between what the prophets had seen before this and 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 what these eyewitnesses and what we now see after this said the difference between what the prophets and kings saw and what we see is the difference between twilight and noonday, is the difference between winter and summer, is the difference of the mind of a child and the mind of a fully grown man. We are blessed to have the opportunities to see, to understand, to know the things that we know. See, guys, let's, let's, let's wrap all this up. Let's put a nice little bow on this, right? What do we do with it? At the end of all this understanding what it says, now what do we do with it? Well, there is a cosmic battle at place in the world. It's been happening throughout history, but, but a cosmic battle is in place, and at the very center of it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The battle is being waged still today. But you know what? The question of victory was decided about 2,000 years ago. The, the question of victory was decided at Calvary, up on top of that hill on a cross. See, what we see in this ministry of the 70 disciples that went out are the first moments of triumph, are the first moments of the kingdom of God pushing back and defeating the kingdom of darkness, that demons were being cast out in the same way that, that D-Day was the first moments of triumph in June of 1944 for the Allied forces. See, that military campaign, that effort as young man after young man after young man stormed those beaches in Normandy and France. 
about how that victory was finally won, how that beachhead was finally taken. You know what? The war lasted over a year after that battle, but that battle was, was the beginning of the end, right? That battle was the turning point where the war wasn't completely decided, but, but everybody kind of knew that the war was over. Our ministry for Christ, the, the ministry of these disciples that, that were at work in our passage today, it's playing out that cosmic struggle. It's playing out that battle in the same way that victory was, was decided from D-Day and moving forward towards the end of World War II. Victory is decided, but it's not completed yet. In the space that we're living in right now, there is no doubt about the final outcome. There is no doubt about who will ultimately win this war, about how this will play out. The kingdom of God will push back, will ultimately defeat and destroy the kingdom of Satan that has been at work in this world for thousands of years. The first moments of victory, though, were seen in moments like this, where this ministry of the 70 disciples went out and were casting out demons and were pushing back that darkness. And now standing here today, we get to go home. You know what your, your take-home for today is? You know what my take-home for today is, for this week is, as I've studied this? We get to go out of here celebrating in joy, in victory, the fact that this war is decided, that this war is won, that, that we don't have to wonder about how this is all going to play out. We win. I read the end of the book. We win. There's some questions about how we get there, but, but you know what? At the end, Jesus wins, and the kingdom of God will defeat the kingdom of Satan. We rejoice, we share this hope with Jesus because in him rests the truth that our names can be written, can be found written in heaven. That was what Jesus encouraged these disciples to rejoice in, and that's what we get to rejoice in as well. We get to rejoice in the fact that one day, all will be made right, and that if we have placed our faith in Jesus alone for salvation, it is by his grace, it is by faith in Jesus, we can be set free, we can be forgiven, we can have our names written in heaven. As we finish up, I'd encourage you, don't leave here this morning hearing this message, hearing the reality that, that the kingdom of God is going to defeat the kingdom of darkness. Don't leave here not knowing which kingdom you're a part of. Leave here knowing. And so if you don't know sitting here right now, you know what? We have a prayer team that is going to be outside the doors on your right underneath of a tent that would love to talk to you, would love to share with you what that looks like to know that you are a part of the kingdom of God, to receive that offer, receive that gift of salvation. But in just a second, we're also going to remember and to rejoice that that victory that was won at Calvary on the cross is ours today. We're going to take communion. And we're going to remember the broken body of Jesus. We're going to remember the blood that was spilled out by Jesus, the sacrifice that was made. And, and before we do that, I want to share with you guys a couple of verses just to, to set our minds on the love that God poured out at Calvary, to set our minds on what that looks like. And, and so personally, as I've been reading through the scriptures on my own in the mornings, I've been reading recently through the book of Exodus. 
I've been reading the story about how God set the people of Israel free from Egypt. And as God set them free from Egypt, there was this incredible moment where the Passover was instituted. Where Jesus told the the nation of Israel to kill their best lamb. To kill their best lamb and to, in in slaughtering it, to, to put the blood from that lamb on the doorposts of their home. That in putting that blood on the door, that that God would know that that these people were his and that the angel of death that was coming to kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians, that 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 angel would pass over their house. That that the lives of the children that were in those homes would be saved because of the sacrifice of that lamb. Well, you know what that points to? As people who are blessed to, to have read the rest of the story like we are, to have eyes that have seen the truth. Well, well, we know how that points forward to, to Jesus, to the perfect lamb, to the perfect sacrifice whose life would be given so that, so that people could be forgiven, so that people could be spared, so that people like me would not have to give my life because he willingly gave his. Let me read for you guys from Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 23, as we remember that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Verse 21, it says, Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and uh, apply some of that blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of this house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. That lamb gave its life so that the children could be spared. You know what, guys? We have a lamb that gave his life so that we could be spared. As we remember that, as we celebrate, as we take communion this morning, let's remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Let's remember that the victory has been won. Let's remember and rejoice in the fact that we have hope for the future because we know that the score is already settled, that Jesus has already paid the debt. We have been forgiven and we have been set free. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your work in our lives. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for the hope that we can have knowing, looking forward to the day that one day the world will be set right again. That one day all will be accomplished. That the kingdom of God will take full effect in the world. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That there will be all things set right again. But until then, God, we we live in the already but not yet. That the, the victory is already won, but God, we're still waiting for that fulfillment. And so as we wait, we still celebrate. We still trust that you are high above it all. We still trust that you are in control and we still trust that we can place our hope in Jesus. That our hope that is found in the, the blood-stained cross of Calvary, God, We thank you for that brutal instrument of death and how it symbolizes our life. God, as we take of these communion elements, this this small piece of bread, this small cup, God, we remember 
that they symbolize the greatest sacrifice that has ever been made. God, we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for his sacrifice. And we thank you. We come to you in the power of that sacrifice. We come to you knowing that you hear us because, God, Jesus made a way for us. And so, as we remember, we celebrate that. And we thank you for it. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.